0: Wow uh, two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my value fixed by ransom paid at the cross uh, we're going to see all of that and more as we look at today's passage um, it, in case you don't know me I think everybody here probably does but my name is George um, I'll be I'm preaching today and we're going to be looking at first Kings 3 3 through 15 So if you want to go there, I'll read in just a moment. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God... You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people?" and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this text this morning, and we ask you to use it to show us Christ. God, may we so marvel in Jesus' love and his grace toward us that we would run from sin and run to you. God, show us your law. Show us your wisdom this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today we have a very different sort of text. Um, We may have gotten used to the simplicity yet depth of John. Um, Simple words that are packed with meaning, uh, simple actions that point to Jesus like, like lighted billboards on a dark highway at night. We know and believe that all Scripture is written for our good, for our conforming to the image of Christ. Nevertheless, Song of Solomon, which we're going to get to soon, um, our summer series, engages us in a way that other passages might not. And in preparation for that, we're going to take a look at this passage that might seem simple on its face, but actually has a ton to tell us of warning and encouragement. So, first, we're going to take it bit by bit. So, first, he says in verse 3 through 5, he says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So right from the start, we're faced with two competing truths. Solomon loves the Lord. He's obedient, walking in the statutes of David. We're reminded that he's David's son, and so we are not surprised, maybe we should be. But in any case, Solomon truly loves the Lord. Only, only. He's going to the high places to worship just like everyone else. Even if we aren't sure what those high places are, maybe we come to the text and we don't have that knowledge, even then, the only is enough to tip us off that this is not something that the writer is commending. It's not commendable. Solomon the king is engaged in something that's questionable in the eyes of this writer, the writer of Kings. It calls into question his very obedience and love. It raises the question, is this what love really looks like? We know from John, if we love, we'll obey. These high places were a perpetual disaster for the people of Israel. Situated on hilltops all over the country, These spots were used for worship following the idea of basically closer to the sky, closer to God, or gods. God had commanded worship and sacrifice in one place, the place that he would choose, and yet they're choosing to worship wherever they are with whatever means they think is right without any leadership or guidance. So once the sites of worship of local deities, they've blended them into the worship of Yahweh. To no good effect. Ezekiel offers some of his harshest criticisms against these mountains, these high places that had perverted the worship of Yahweh. And Solomon, loving Solomon, heads to the high place at Gibeon to worship the God of David, his father. He isn't skulking off for some private religious experience either. He's, as king, committing to multiple days of sacrifice and celebration. And because you can't sacrifice a, a thousand. Bulls, a thousand animals in a, in a couple hours. This is going to be days of celebration. And in the book of Chronicles, we're actually told that he leads a large assembly of his people, of the leaders of the land, with him. This isn't just a one-off, him going off to have a private revelation on the top of a hill. This is him taking people so that they will see him as king, worshiping God. He'll be the talk of the town. We're also told why he goes to Gibeon specifically. The tent of meeting still sits at Gibeon. Though David has long since taken the Ark to Jerusalem, he goes to Gibeon to see the Tent of Meeting. There's this break going on. Something is amiss, and we're not told explicitly what it is because the author of Kings knows, we should already know that as part of the information, so we'll get to that. What we can see, though, already is that though Solomon has come to seek God's favor, it is God who initiates the conversation. Ask what I shall give you, he says. From a dream. Though no one present knows what's going on, every reader of this book is set to ask, what's it going to be? Will it be wealth and power? Will it be expanded borders? Will it be peace? Will he ask for the death of his enemies? But we're forced to wait for the question just a bit longer. The text continues in verse 6. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So before he can even get to the question, we have Solomon's take on his kingship so far. Everything he has, he acknowledges, is a blessing from God. He didn't do it on his own. God's faithfulness is on full display as Solomon speaks. We often think in terms of our love offered to God or even of God's general love for humanity here we see something else. Solomon speaks of a steadfast love offered to a specific individual and even a specific family. That's David and his descendants. Solomon starts at a great place for worship. He starts with the recognition of how his own kingship is part of God's promise keeping to David. He starts with God's promises to enable his worship. And he then turns to reflect on his own ability. He calls himself a little child and speaks of his not knowing how to go out or come in. These are biblical metaphors that we don't typically use, but Solomon is young, but he's king. He's already shown himself adept at political engagement, but once he sees God's greatness, once he sees God in dream, who wouldn't recognize their smallness? They're not measuring up. They're not being worthy to be king. Not knowing how to go out or come in speaks of a lack of practical wisdom, how to get the job done well. To be clear, the reader who's gotten to chapter 3 in Kings is probably scratching their head because it's already been pretty clear that Solomon has a ton of wisdom. In chapter 2, before his death, David reflects on Solomon's acumen, uh, his wisdom in dealing with palace intrigue. Um, And so we're, we're asked, is this a false humility? Is he just kind of saying what he thinks the people want to hear or what God wants to hear? Is this a new recognition of his dependence on God to sustain his throne moving forward? Well, the writer doesn't dwell there. Solomon now begins his request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Go, Solomon! He may be a smart guy on his own, but he can see the task ahead is too big for him. God has demonstrated how important his people are, and we might even say that they're central to his purposes in creation and redemption. So Solomon is taking it seriously. Our own modern governments tend not to combine the idea of judge with that of executive, but for a king Of Solomon's time, to be king meant to be a judge. It meant to actually have to rule on personal problems. You get to the law, the law is, is a lot of it is case law. It's a specific example, then what to do about a specific example. And then the king has to say, well, based on all of this example, I have a new case. I have a new situation. How do I apply it? So he's asking for wisdom to do just that. He's not asking necessarily for social or economic or military prudence, but for how to judge between men as God would. In a nation whose judges have been spotty at best, whose kings have not fared much better with Saul, um, Solomon demonstrates a really, really good understanding of what God expects in his leaders. And it continues, "'God said to him, "'Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days.'" And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon just got a pop quiz and nailed it. He could have asked for all kinds of things, could have asked for the affections of a beautiful princess, could have asked for a conversation with his dear departed dad, could have asked for his enemies' heads on silver platters. With the God of the universe asking what he wanted, he asks for the right thing. Knowing he is just a man, called to lead and govern men, he asked for the wisdom to do the job God's way. And just like Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel, focus on my kingdom first, and all these other things will be added. I'm not saying riches, but all of our needs, everything that we need to accomplish the job before us, God says he will provide. Solomon has sought to do a good job as God's under-shepherd, and God says, absolutely. And promises him riches and honor to do. Not only that, if he is diligent and follows through on that wisdom, then God will give him length of days. Not only a blessing for Solomon, but a blessing for a people to be ruled by such a king. And then finally, Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So Solomon, what a guy, right? seems stand up. Are we just meant to read this and consume it intellectually? Just kind of, this is a picture of, of Solomon. Great, move on. Is there some deeper moral to be grasped? God is good. Prayer is good. Wisdom is good. God's people are special. God's king is special. Jerusalem is special. Is Solomon an example for us? And if he is an example, is he a good one or a bad one? We might also be asking, has God been faithful to his promises to David? What was the writer of Kings trying to communicate? And beyond that, as Christians, as those who now have a vision of Christ, David's son, what do we do with this episode? What do we read here? What do we find here? Does it actually instruct us? Is it profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? And the answer, of course, is yes. So let's start with the good. For starters, we can probably see here a model of prayer. It begins with reminding ourselves of God's grace, his character, his deeds, his promises. We find this in verse six of today's passage, we already mentioned it, uh, where Solomon remembers God's steadfast faithfulness to David. You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. You've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Prayer starting with a place of the bigness of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his power to do everything that's required to accomplish his purposes is a great place to start in prayer. And that's exactly what Solomon demonstrates for us. And then he shows the next step being humility. Um, We might even go so far as to push towards more confession, but Solomon puts it this way. I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. He expresses his weakness and neediness to God. And once we've encountered the bigness, that's the natural response. We see God's bigness. We respond by acknowledging our relative smallness. And that'll, for us, probably lead to our sin, our, our willingness to reject God's glory. And then Solomon moves on to request. And if you're familiar, if you've heard of the Acts model, then this is probably something similar to that, but just collapsing, so you have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. Um, And that's kind of what this is if you collapse adoration and thanksgiving and put a little bit more focus on confession. And while this is a biblically sound model for prayer, this passage is not teaching about prayer. It's not the point. It's not presenting a guideline for prayer. It doesn't prescribe the right way or the wrong way to pray. It demonstrates a particular prayer by a particular person in God's people. I'll say it again. The passage ultimately isn't about prayer. So what else can we find here in the good category? Um, I've already said it as we read through the passage, but Solomon demonstrates a really good understanding of God's heart for his people. They need leadership. He is called by God, not just by king, not just by fact that he's David's son. He's actually being called by God to be that leader. That's why he's going to Gibeon, to be crowned, essentially, to be considered as the king, to be shown before God's selection at the tent of meeting that he's the king. They need leadership, and God has picked him. And if he's going to be a good leader, he really does need God's wisdom, his own brand of wisdom, which we'll talk about, is just not going to be good enough. It's worldly. It's not going to lead his people the way that God wants. So he truly needs wisdom, and so do you and I. If we intend to live in community as a church, if we intend to lead others into and lead others within this community, we need to be seeking wisdom from God and not trusting our own worldly wisdom the world, the wisdom of businesses, the, the, the worldly wisdom of families and, and what we've grown up with in our traditions and in our governmental systems, we can't trust that. We have to seek God's wisdom. Our wisdom often looks right. It gives us peace and security, a warm fuzzy, but it often rejects God's leadership. We can say all the right things but have all our trust in our own intellects, our own craftiness, and our own plans whether it's missionaries looking for a sure-fire method to win souls or a pastor looking to keep people and bring them in, our wisdom often falls short of trusting God to actually build the work. Additionally, Solomon truly displays wisdom and skillful administration of God's kingdom and people following this prayer. This isn't just a prayer we go, oh, great, Solomon asked for really good things, And and that's the end of it. No, God actually follows through. We have 1 Kings 3 immediately after this passage. Um, We usually just talk about this as two women, but it's actually two prostitutes coming in before God, before the king, and saying, hey, we have this complaint. This is one of our children. It's my child. No, it's my child. And Solomon has to demonstrate godly wisdom, and he does it by illustrating compassion as the, 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 the defining rule. 1 Kings 4 talks of Solomon and says that he had wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breath of mind like the sand on the seashore. It's not a passing thing. It's not something that you can just glance over with Solomon. This is a defining characteristic, his wisdom. 1 Kings 10, we see the queen of Sheba and the summary of her visit with him as she overlooks the palace and sees how he rules and sees the people themselves, he sa- she says, Happy are your men, happy are your servants. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So on the good, we should also see reverberations with Matthew. We already mentioned it, but Jesus tells his disciples that if they will seek first the kingdom, that God will give them what they need. They don't need to worry. We we don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious about the future. You need to trust God, follow his lead, and seek his kingdom. That's what we learn from Solomon. And as an aside, that kingdom often looks like sacrifice. It may not look like a throne. It may instead look like a hard slog. It may look like submission and patience over the course of many years. It's no guarantee of success, but it is a promise of God's care and presence. All that said, let's talk about the bad for a moment. First Kings three, three through 15 is not presenting a glorified Solomon. It's not a picture of Solomon that's all happy in roses. Solomon is a deeply flawed sinner. Just like we are deeply flawed sinners. Solomon seeks wisdom from God, but he isn't coming from a clean slate. He loves God, but his worship is all over the place. He may recognize his weakness, but he's already known for shrewd political dealings. He isn't exactly the poster child already for compassionate rule. For instance, 1 Kings 2, 5 through 6, just the chapter before, has this. David, speaking to his son, moreover, you also know, what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for the blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet, act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace." Or just a few verses later, now therefore do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do to him and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. In short, David says, according to your wisdom, make them pay with their lives. David already sees wisdom in Solomon, but what kind of wisdom is it? It's not the kind of wisdom he asks for when he's in God's presence. Wisdom is is going to be slippery because we're so enamored with sin. It grabs hold of not only our decisions, so that whether we make wise decisions or not, but it, it grabs hold of our desires, whether or not we have wise desires. The wisdom of the world is not the same thing as the wisdom that comes from God. So that's the bad, but it isn't the worst of it. Let's talk ugly. We started our reading today in verse 3, but let's look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Instead of looking out for his own people, God's way, he's already making political alliances through marriage, something God had explicitly said no. Verboten, you can't do it. Israel's kings weren't supposed to be known for making political alliances through marriage. The writer links two things so we can't misunderstand. Solomon has married his Egyptian princess, and the direct effect is that the house of the Lord is not being built. Solomon is distracted. And it isn't just a passing concern. By chapter 11, we'll see Solomon's kingdom begin to crumble under the weight of his failure as a king, multiplying political alliances through marriage. I'm talking like 700 marriages, so that he can expand his kingdom and get reputation and fame and wealth. And with that comes the inviting, the worship of foreign gods into Israel's national life. As goes the king, so goes the people. Solomon is not just distracted with foreign wives. He's also distracted with his own house. His busyness with his house means he isn't building the temple. So that gray area we mentioned between the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant, between the meeting at the high place in Gibeon and the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, it's allowed to endure, resulting in confusion and sin. It's a people not led wisely, worship, doing whatever they think is best. When God has already told them how to worship, it the king would just do his job, build that temple, centralize that worship the way God had said he should. So, he's been called, he knows the job, David has let him know, God has let him know he's not doing it, and his people are suffering because of it. Unless we skim too quickly, in verse 3 we read, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. This is probably tantamount to, "Well, your son, will your daughter... He doesn't say, God's statutes. He says, my father's statutes. God, in verse 14, counters, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments... As your father David walked, he doesn't let it go. He isn't letting Solomon off the hook. Solomon loves the Lord, but his obedience is only partial. He's still sacrificing on the high places, still modeling improper worship for God's people. Solomon is committed to his father's God and all the many promises, but God calls him and calls you and me to go deeper. So that is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And together it tells us one more important fact. And that is that the emphasis of this passage is not on Solomon's great choice or wisdom. Yes, that's the situation, but that's not the point. They're important. They're not the point. The point of this passage is on God's grace in choosing him as king. It's on God's provision of wisdom so that Solomon can actually do what God has put him in place to do. It's God's care and protection of his people. It's God's gracious blessing despite Solomon's faulty human wisdom and misplaced love. God is so gracious to us just as he was with Solomon. He sees us in our sin and he responds in compassion that we don't deserve. He sees our proud intellects, our street smarts, our arrogant strutting and posturing And in wisdom and perfect timing, hopefully he disciplines us as children. He's a tender-hearted God who is slow to anger. He gives good gifts out of his glorious bounty. He's holy and invites the people to share in that holiness. What more can be said, but what a marvelous father. What a wonderful God. Don't get me wrong. Um, Solomon isn't the bad guy in the story. He's just like you and me, a sinner in need of a savior. What Solomon asked for was good and it was right, and it isn't just for kings, it's for you and it's for me. Do we want to see discipleship fleshed out in our body here? Are we praying for wisdom? Are you longing to share Christ with your neighbor? Have you prayed for wisdom, how to accomplish that? Are you struggling in a world dominated by sin? Are you praying for wisdom to endure? We don't have to be blessed with resources and position and power if we desire wisdom. We can ask God. We have assurance. This is from the book of James. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. All this talk of Solomon, of David's son, should prepare us to consider Jesus, the better son of David. Unlike Solomon, Jesus is not stained by sin. He lived a sinless life, always worshiping God in spirit and truth. He obeyed the whole law without omission, without argument. Jesus is the wisdom of God. You can read Proverbs 8 While Solomon sought wisdom, Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Jesus himself tells us, the queen of the south, that's Sheba who we already mentioned, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus has no need to make sacrifices as as Solomon did, because he is the perfect sacrifice. And so this morning, I invite you to know Jesus. Know his life, lived out in wisdom. He is the perfect king, the perfect governor of men's souls. He demonstrates the wisdom in compassion and mercy and love, patience with error. He demonstrates wisdom like no other. In his death, we see perfect wisdom, the submission of himself to the Father, life given to heal where no one else was capable, it's wisdom. Not wisdom like the world sees, but wisdom that comes from God. And finally, the wisdom in his resurrection. We see the spirit provided for us so that we can actually be holy as God is holy. We see good gifts displayed because God in wisdom knows how to give good gifts. He knows what we actually need in order to make us like his son. So you desire wisdom. It begins with knowing Christ Jesus, the only Savior. Wisdom begins with seeing ourselves in Solomon's shoes as sinners receiving the patience and grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to you, we... Recognize that we are in need. We want to proclaim your glory, but so often we're caught up in our own rule. God, help us to treasure Jesus more. God, we want vibrant relationships, and so often we sabotage them seeking our own will seeking our own pleasure and happiness and our own position. God, may we know what true Christian community looks like. May we not put in place a false community that we can make on our own, but may we trust you to build community that we could not have expected. Father, both give us a passion for evangelizing our community. Um, God, but also wisdom to know how to speak. Whether that is in person, whether that is on social media, wherever it is, God, would you please make us wise? Help us to know when to speak. Help us to know what to speak. God, help us to love like you. Father, help us to count the cost of being disciples. Help us not to treat it as something that is One day a week, um, something for our benefit alone, but help us to truly count it. Father, we do ask in view of your mercy, may we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, our true and proper worship. God, give us wisdom that we might not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, give us the wisdom we need to test and approve what your will is, your good, pleasing, perfect will. God, we praise you here. We praise you forever. Um, In the name of Jesus Christ.